23 today. Acts chapter 23. We left off last time where Paul had gone before the council. He was having a rough week and uh, he was beaten by a bunch of Jews that were accusing him of things that he didn't do. Commander had to come and rescue him. And then he goes and um, speaks to them after he was beaten by them. And everything seemed to be going really well up until the point where he said that Jesus sent him to go speak to the Gentiles. And then they went crazy again, so he had to get rescued again. And so then he's arrested. They're going to scourge him, beat him, till he admits to his crimes, but he didn't have any crime. And then he tells them he's a Roman citizen. And that's when things change. And the commander says, oh, well, I'm not going to mess with a Roman citizen. It's even illegal for me to have bound him. So uh, his attitude changes a little. And then he decides to call the Council of the Jews before... Um, the commander, so he can decide what really was happening. And the council comes, and they're discussing, uh, you know, the crimes, but not really. They were going to smack Paul upside the head because they didn't like what he said, although he didn't say anything wrong. And uh, then it started getting violent because Paul pitted the one side of the Sanhedrin against the other, the Sadducees against the Pharisees, and he sided with the Pharisees. Oh, it's because of the fact that I believe in the resurrection. You know, that's why I'm being accused of this. And that started this big dissension going on there. And once again, the commander had to remove him to keep him from being beaten by uh, these, this mob this council now that was uh, trying to kill him off. Paul really needed to hear some good news at this point. He wasn't really having the best week at all. Today's message is titled, Your Best Life Now. Yeah. We continue our study through Acts 23. We're going to pick it up at the verse we left off with last week in verse 11, where we read, uh, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And so here's the best news he could hear. Jesus standing there next to him, telling him, be of good cheer. Uh, that had to encourage him. Uh, just the fact that Jesus was there was encouraging enough. And so he was probably filled with peace in that moment. It was the following night, so he had a whole night to dwell on what was going on and what was going to happen next. Can you imagine having Jesus 
standing there just talking with you and that, wouldn't that make you feel better when you know no matter what you're going through and Jesus you know stands next to you what if Jesus stood next to you and said you're gonna die tomorrow you know that wouldn't be as encouraging but the fact that we know that when we leave this earth we're in heaven that's pretty encouraging you know, sometimes we look at everything from a fleshly point of view, from a worldly point of view, and, and uh, we miss out uh, on the bigger picture uh, that Jesus has. So Paul is now kind of getting the bigger picture of what's going on. He says, you have, as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also go and bear witness at Rome. That's good news because he wanted to go to Rome. That's where he wanted to go. And so Jesus just said, you're going. He said, as you have testified of me. So he's also commending Paul of the fact that he testified of Jesus in Jerusalem. That he was doing the right thing. He just didn't get the results that he was hoping for. How often do we have that problem? We testify, we share our testimony, we share scripture, and we're hoping that a light turns on, you know, and that all of a sudden someone says, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. I want to know your Jesus. You know, what do I have to do from there? Generally, that's not what happens. You share it over and over. And here's the most common answer, the, the response that I get from a lot of people is, well, that's fine for you. You know, that's, you know, that's what you need. You know, uh, I've got my own thing, you know, or, you know, or, or I'm not ready. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm not ready? I've got other things I'm working on right now. No one's ever really ready to die unless they know Jesus. See, when you know Jesus, you're ready at any moment. You're, you'll be okay with it at any moment because passing from this life into the next, we're not bringing the baggage, we're not bringing you know, any of the illness, any of the tragedy from this life. We're not bringing it with us. We're, we're going on to what's better. And so... You know, praise the Lord uh, that we can have that in our hearts. We can have that hope. Paul obviously had that hope. And that's what um, Jesus is telling him now. As you testify to me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness of me in Rome. You notice what he didn't say. None of them got saved. What's wrong with you, Paul? You know, Peter went out with a bunch of his guys and thousands got saved on the day of Pentecost. And here, you went out there and you couldn't even save one. He didn't say that. We don't store up rewards in heaven for the number of people that get saved because of our testimony. We store up rewards in heaven by sharing the good news it's up to God through the Holy Spirit to draw them in and work on their heart. It, that's, that's God's work. Our work is just to do what he's called us to do. 
and we don't have the power to save them. All we do is follow the plan that God has laid before us, the, the testimony that he's built in our lives, and we share that, and then the rest of it's up to the Holy Spirit and the person whether or not they want to be saved. So Paul had this heart to go to Rome. He's on his way there now. And now he can be sure that it's going to happen because Jesus told him face to face. Now we continue in verse 12 where we read, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will not eat, uh, we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So there's the plan, the oath that some of these guys took. Now, what kind of guys would take an oath like this? There were people that um, were living at that time, Jews, that were going out murdering Roman soldiers whenever they got the chance. They were called daggers. They would keep daggers. They would make a dagger and they would keep them hidden in their clothing. And when they were on the street, if they saw a Roman soldier that was vulnerable by himself, they would go up and slit their throat. And they were very good at it. They were feared by the Romans. And that's why they, there were always more than one Roman soldier together. They would go out in groups. But you get one by himself, and it, it was very possible that uh, one of these guys would hunch down. And here, um, it was probably a group of those kind of guys that were ready to take Paul down. Y you have to understand... They didn't think they were doing anything wrong. They thought they were doing this for God. This is what Paul believed when he was Saul, a Pharisee, sitting in the Sanhedrin. He believed that he was doing God's work. He didn't think that what he was doing was sin. He thought he was being righteous in killing the Christians. And so when these guys banded together to do this. They fully believed what they were doing was the will of God. Sometimes you can be very sincere in what you're doing, but be sincerely wrong in what you're doing. And that's what was happening here. They were just wrong because they were, didn't see the bigger picture. They didn't believe the truth. Now see, here's the thing. The truth was on Paul's side. And so even though these 40 murderers were getting ready to go kill Paul, it wasn't the will of God. At some point, you would think these guys would wake up and realize that. That, you know what? God isn't on our side with this one. 
So they said they're not going to eat nor drink until he's dead. That means he's, they've got like four or five days. Uh, you know, because after five days without water, without, you know, food, you're going to die. You know, you don't, you don't live much past, past three days. But maybe they were healthy. They'd make it to five. So here they are taking this oath. And if Paul's life is an example for us, then here's the example. The closer you get to Christ, the more people come against you. Not the easier it gets, but the harder it gets. Because you're against what the world is standing for. And we're seeing that more and more today. Things that we wouldn't have imagined 30 years ago taking place in the United States are taking place right now. What we used to call a Christian nation is now an anti-Christian nation. And people find ways to make Christians haters because we don't agree with them. I don't hate you, I just don't agree with you. I don't believe the same things that you believe. But I don't hate you because of that. I'm not a hater. As a matter of fact, I hope that the love of God opens your eyes to the truth and that we can all be in heaven together. And so I know that there are lots of people out there that will hear that message and receive it someday. Hopefully not before it's too late, but that they'll receive it and they'll accept that message. But many won't. Once again, it's not up to us to force them to believe it. It's us to up, up to us to be an example so that they see the example being lived out in our lives and that's what's attractive. That's what draws them to Christ. You know what? That person, he's experiencing all this trouble in his life, yet he doesn't let it overwhelm him. It doesn't cause him to act irrationally. And that's what Paul's life was like. No matter how much they persecuted him, he still came back to tell them about the love of Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It wasn't an option thing. All who desire to live that way will suffer persecution. It's going to happen. If you're going along with the flow, you're not going to have conflict. If you're doing what everyone else is doing, you're going to be okay. Because they'll accept you for doing. Many churches are now accepting what the world is saying is the norm. And they're inviting sin into the church, calling it love. And it's wrong. It's anti-biblical. It's the opposite of what we're taught through the word of God. But these people believe that what they're doing is right because 
there are a lot of people in that church that support their life. Paul called out in the Corinthians, he called out the guy that was sleeping with his father's wife and the church was condoning it. They were okay with it. They closed their eyes to it. And Paul wrote a letter and said, you know, this ain't right. You can't be doing this. And so they kicked the guy out of the church. They, they got it. All right, you're right. We can't do this. And they kicked him out of the church. Then he wrote in the second Corinthians, hey, the guy repented. Let him back in. And they were like, oh, okay. Well, I guess we should have got that message too. See, the thing is that people will sin. Everyone sins. People will sin. When they repent, we restore them. Because that's what Jesus did for us. We were sinners in need of a Savior. He saved us. And that's it. Now we're sin free. We're not sin free. We're still stinking sinners because we're in the flesh. And we'll be this way up until he comes and takes us home. And then we'll be perfect. But until then, we're still... Now, does that mean that our sin is going to keep us out of heaven? No. But it means that we have to remember that we're sinners. It cuts off our communication from Jesus when we live in sin and don't ask for forgiveness. And we don't repent from that sin. Forgiveness is a tough thing. A lot of people hold on to bitterness because they have a hard time forgiving people from things that they've done in the past. Paul just got beat by a bunch of Jews and they wanted to kill him and he's getting carried off by the soldiers and he says, hold on, hold on, I want to talk to him. And he still wants to share with them the love of God. That's forgiveness in action. He already forgave them. And that's just one minute later. I have a hard time forgiving the guy that cut me off on the freeway last week. You know? And, but Paul didn't have a problem with this. You know, we need to have that kind of forgiveness. That we not only forgive, we forget. We put it past and then it restores a relationship, possibly. So they wanted to kill him. They were bound by this oath. And they're not going to live very long if they stay. Now, first of all, let me tell you about an oath. Oaths are very important in the Jewish law. But the way they had their law written, uh, there's always loopholes. And there's always a way out. But, you know, these guys were truly committed uh, by this oath that they took. So um, this was definitely going to happen if they had the opportunity. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, I guess they didn't have the word nephew then. Uh, So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. 
And so he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as they were going to inquire of him uh, more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise uh, from you. And so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So that's kind of cool that the nephew was there. He was able to hear what was going on. It's, it's kind of funny how we get these details uh, in the book of Acts. Who was writing Acts? Well, it was Luke, the doctor. And he was possibly in the area when this was happening, so he was documenting this. But we know that um, Luke actually interviewed lots of people to write the things that he wrote. And so um, here, as he's writing this, he probably interviewed either Paul or the nephew, or maybe someone else who was there that got saved through Paul's ministry or by the events that were taking place there. So um, this is kind of, so how do, we, how do we even imagine this? Well, there are details in this uh, that are given when uh, the commander took him by the hand and went aside. You know, so someone had to have seen that because why would you include that in the story unless it was that personal thing that was there that he took him by the hand and took him aside. When you take someone by the hand, uh, you're showing that they're not a threat, you're not a threat, and you just want to talk to them. And that's why he did that and took them aside. And so it kind of sets the atmosphere for the relationship and what's going on in this conversation. And so the commander listened to what he had to say. He said, don't tell anyone what you just told me. And so the commander now has this information. So now let's consider... Claudius Lysias, this commander, who had seen everything happen from the time Paul was being beaten at the Temple Mount. Then he was removed to the Antonio Fortress, but then he wanted to speak to the crowd, and he did. And then they tried to beat him again. And then the council came, and they hated him. And so the only thing that he's sure of is that he's a Roman citizen, and that the Jews hate him for some reason, and that he's a Jew. And so he's really trying to figure out what is going on with this guy. But being under that observation for these days, watching this take place, it must have dawned on him, you know what, this guy is no threat. He hasn't done anything threatening to anyone, whether it was a Roman or a Jew. And he's just sharing a message that he believes in. And so this must have really sank in with him. 
And so now when he hears from the nephew uh, of what's going to happen with these, well, immediately, who are these men that took an oath? This commander probably already thought, I, I know that group of guys. I know who, who they would be that would want to put him to death. And, you know, so now maybe he's a little more on Paul's side uh, than uh, we would imagine because he's a Roman and he's an upstanding guy. He hasn't done anything really wrong at this point. At this point, I don't think Paul was even concerned about the oath that was taken against him because Jesus had told him, you're going to Rome. So Paul was just like, okay, maybe I'll make the commander aware of this, but if he knows the Jews, if they were going to do something, they were going to accomplish what they were going to do. But if God is going to do something, then you know, they, they will never be successful against what God wants to do. And he called for two centurions, here's the commander, calling for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. If you're on the road in the middle of the night and 470 people on horses and spearmen and all of this, you would think the king was coming through, you know, passing through, right? 470 because of 40 men that had taken an oath. God's odds, right? It, you know, it's like, okay, so it said there were more than 40. So let's just say there were 47. There were 10 soldiers for every one of those that had taken an oath against Paul. And so that's the kind of protection that God provides. You know, it, it just wouldn't even make sense that this commander would take. And, and first of all, you're putting 470 men out there that are normally guarding Jerusalem. So now your, your troops are going to be... Now, there was a legion that was established at the Antonio Fortress, over 1,000 that are there at the Antonio Fortress. But still, 470, that's, you're taking 50% of them out to go do this? You know, so... Uh, that's kind of interesting to see, you know, what this commander is thinking. But even more so, it just shows how the hand of God provides for what's necessary at the time that, uh, you know, things take place. Do you realize that when we are being attacked by the enemy... And truly, now, it's not Satan coming to Fountain Hills to attack us, okay? He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's, you know, a created being. And he can only be in one place at one time. But he has lots of demons. 
and they travel around messing with people's lives. And so when you are under the impression, uh, oppression of the enemy, um, there are just as many of God's angels that are out there watching and aware of the things that we go through. And when there is a, a need for them to intervene, they do. And you may be completely oblivious about the whole thing. But God is watching over and he intervenes just like he's doing right here in this story. It's a little more obvious here, but uh, in our own lives, we just don't see the things that God is doing. And But he's still working on our behalf. So Claudius was concerned not only for Paul, he was concerned for his own reputation. If these guys got to Paul, then it would make him look bad. He would be responsible. And so this was also uh, watching out for his own interests. So I don't think that he was really worried about Paul Uh, being killed, even if he sent a hundred with Paul. I don't think he would worry about that, but he wasn't going to take any chances. So he's preparing to send Paul at 9 p.m., third watch of the night. And he's preparing to send Paul at that point. Caesarea was the Roman capital. They had many more resources there to protect Paul also once he got there. But he had to make it there. And Felix, uh, the governor, was there. It was about 60 miles from Jerusalem. On It still is. Uh, 60 miles from Jerusalem on the Mediterranean Sea. It's still there. It's kind of cool when you go tour um, Israel that you can go to the site of the prison uh, where Paul was held on the Mediterranean. It's actually uh, an interesting site to go visit and, uh, and see there. Have any of you been there? I know Larry and Melanie have. You guys were there with us. It's a lot of fun. Caesarea would have more soldiers and they'd be able to protect them better. So 470 men protecting this one man against those that took an oath. I don't think uh, Claudius would have sent 470 men for any other prisoner. So this was something that God was doing, demonstrating through his life. Claudius now is going to write a letter to Felix that he's going to send with the troops that are bringing him up there. And he wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, Greetings. So that's how they wrote letters back in those days. They started off with their own name. So the person reading it would know who it's from. They don't have to go to the end to find out who it's from. It's right there at the beginning. Oh, it's from Claudius and it's to the most excellent governor, Felix. Oh, he's getting on his good side already. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found 
out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And so that's this letter that he sends. Obviously, he didn't text the message to um, Felix. There was no other way really to get the message except this group carrying the message to Felix. So when Felix got it, uh, it, it said that he had already alerted uh, the Jews that they were going to have to go to council uh, before you, Felix. Well, he didn't alert them until maybe two days later after they had already, see it was 60 miles, it was a three-day journey uh, to get up there. And so he would alert them after he was sure that they were well on their way. And um, so then the soldiers, uh, excuse me, yeah. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the barracks. And so here were all the soldiers, the foot soldiers, uh, that went uh, along with this big group of men. So there were 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, and 70 cavalry that uh, brought him. So uh, if you remember back in, in the earlier passage, it said they prepared mounts for Paul plural, mounts. So there were multiple horses that were brought for Paul to ride on so that they would change out the horse after a certain amount of time if it starts to get tired and they would put him on a different horse and then he would continue on. And so here they were going to leave behind all of these foot soldiers and well, you know, that's, you know, uh, scary, right? Oh, now you're only down to 70 horsemen, right? You still got 400 guys that are now going back to the barracks. If there were anyone coming to attack Paul, they'd be in trouble because there are 400 of them coming towards them. So uh, Paul is now going to go uh, before uh, the governor there. So the the uh, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And so Felix accepts the responsibility, but he wants to first check is it under his authority? And Cilicia was under his authority. And so he said, okay, I'll take this on. And he let him stay at the Praetorium. Now I'm sure that there is a prison there, but I'm sure he wasn't under heavy armed chains and guards because they didn't bring him that way. Uh, they presented him as uh, not a threat uh, as a prisoner, but a prisoner still nonetheless. 
So he's brought before this governor. He had this great testimony that he had been sharing with the world for years now. And now he was going to enter the final phase of his life. Five years. The final five years are going to be spent as a prisoner. He wasn't going to have the freedom that he had before. The first two of those years he was going to spend in Caesarea. And then they were going to ship him off to Rome. On the way there, he was going to have some problems. He was going to have a shipwreck and, you know, he, he was going to have all kinds of issues. But eventually he would make it to Rome and live two more years in Rome under guard. But he had his own home that he could stay in, but he had a guard there also. So he was a prisoner there in his own home. So, you know, you would think, man, this guy has the worst luck. You know, he's just like, he's one of those guys that invested in FTX and he lost all his, all his Bitcoin. And, you know, I, it's, it's not that at all. It's the fact that he was doing the will of God. And sometimes when we're directly in the middle of the will of God, we're going to experience trials. We're going to experience struggles. Here's the other side of the story. When we're not in the will of God, we can experience trials. We can experience tr struggles. I I've experienced both. Being in the will of God and being out of the will of God. And experiencing those trials and struggles and turmoil in my life. I'd much rather be in the will of God experiencing those things because I always have the hope of him getting me through it. When I'm on my own and messed up with the different trials and struggles that are going on, you know, I, I don't have any hope. My only hope is going back to being in the will of God. That's for each one of us. We have many times in our lives where we question, is God even aware of what's going on right now? Sometimes we'll get down to pray and we'll just start sharing with, Lord, this is going on. This person is causing problems. This is happening. My, my wife is upset with me and all of this is going on. Lord, are you even aware? And he's fully aware. He knows everything going on. He knows what's going to happen the next day. And it may get worse. But he knows. And he also knows the end of the story. He also knows the victory that we can have through the story. And so the struggle is the fact that we're flesh. And that we have to deal with this until we leave. But he wants to get us through it. He wants us to trust. That's what I get from the life of Paul. He trusts the Lord so deeply that he's not worried about what's taking place.
he didn't even have a book to know how to live his best life now. He, he didn't have all of the distractions in the media that we have today. And all of the, you know, self-help programs. He didn't have any of that. He was writing the book that was going to help us get through all of these things. Your best life now doesn't mean a perfect life, but a life that's in the center of the will of God. That's the best life we can possibly have. When you live there, you'll experience all the trials that everyone else does. Woohoo! It just doesn't seem like a lot to be happy about, but you also experience the peace and comfort that comes from the knowledge and hope of a relationship with, your, with our Lord Jesus Christ and how we're going to get through all this. We have hope at the end of spending eternity with him. That's our best life now, is knowing and having that hope, that security. As we enter into the season where we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we can take joy in the promises of God. They're the same promises that were given to Paul. They are still with us today. Those promises exist for each one of us. Jesus came as a child in this world, as a child, the most vulnerable human coming into this world so he can live and experience what we experience in the flesh, except he did it without sin. He did it coming in this human form, sin-free and perfect, and was able uh, to do not only endure, but then defeat the enemy by going to the cross and taking away the victory of death from the enemy. And he then took over the title deed of the earth. He hasn't opened it yet. It's coming. But it's already planned. It's already done. The promises of God have already been made. And since he's done that, we can truly be joyful, especially in the season that we're entering into today. Amen? Well,